Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17 onwards. On the Pew Bible, it's page 753. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labour in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. This is the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and the days and years. And let there 
let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves above in it, about in it, according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let them make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant, on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Hopefully you can hear me. I'm afraid I'd forgotten that we were due for shortened service this morning, so I haven't done a shortened talk. So if anyone was looking forward to a shorter talk, I'm afraid you'll be disappointed. Uh, <laughs> now, last week, Tim started talking to us about uh, our new series on Christian life and Christian work, and he was talking about who we're working for. And then for anyone that was here last week, he'll have promised you that I was going to explain to you the theology of work, which all sounds rather grand and important, but really I don't think it is. Uh, I once heard someone say that life is a peach and not an orange, and by that they meant that uh, Life's not this thing with many distinct segments, but life is just one whole. And our Christian faith 
and our Christian lives are not distinct from our work. They're not two segments of an orange. They are part of this one whole thing that is life. And our theology of work is simply an explanation and understanding of how our Christian faith and our work combine together to be part of our whole life. So the question that we're looking at today is, why do we work? Now, my first port of call, like any self-respecting person born in the last 30 years, was to go to Google. Very bad practice, I know, for the sermons. There's not a lot out there on the internet about why we work. Most of uh, the searches were to do with, why do you want to work here? Which is apparently a very common interview question. And there were a great number of uh, answers that people were putting forward online about what you should say to, why do you want to work here? Uh, We had the overly confident answer of, if you don't hire me, it will prove that the company's management is incompetent. (laughs) We had the slightly too intense answer of, if you hire me, I'll get the company logo tattooed on my forearm. (laughs) Well, there was the matter-of-fact answer. You have to hire someone, so you may as well give me a try. (laughs) Or the most honest answer that came through uh, the well-known cartoon character, Homer Simpson. There's an episode where he's asked this question, and you see him struggling to find an answer. And he's got this internal monologue, which is crying, money can be exchanged for goods and services. (laughs) So I started thinking, why do we work? And I came up with a few ideas that resonated with me. Firstly, money, or sustenance, a living. We get what we need to survive through working. To stave off boredom. Sometimes I think, what else would I do all day if I didn't go to work? Status or career achievement. Sometimes we have this drive within us to uh, achieve success in our chosen profession and the status that comes with it. To create or produce something of benefit, I think that gives a number of us a sense of satisfaction at work, that we're doing something worthwhile. Perhaps to socialise, if we're fortunate enough to have work colleagues that we get along well with. Parental nagging, for some of us young enough to remember the days of saying, why don't you go out and get a job? But in seriousness, actually, that links into cultural influences. A number of us probably don't question why we work. We're brought up being told you go to school, you get your qualifications so you can get a job and work. It's kind of ingrained in our society. And I thought, but really, why do we work? Because it's not all plain sailing. There's the pressure and stress that comes with the modern-day workplace. Ethical challenges as we face pressure to conform into the company's way of doing things or our colleagues' way of doing things, which may not be... uh, sitting well with our idea of morality. There's time away from family, particularly for those of us who work long hours or have to travel. There's the boredom or monotony that sometimes comes with work, as well as the good side. For many of us, we might feel a lack of appreciation from our colleagues and managers, or indeed have difficult relationships with managers and co-workers. It's a 
This is one that Steph particularly complains about from time to time. I jest. But then I thought, we need to go beyond this. The, these points, the goods and bads about work, are all valid, but equally they could be cited by any non-Christians out there in the world. For our theology of work, it needs to go deeper. There's uh, distinctive living and having a different perspective on life, a key part of our Christian faith. So how can our theology of work go deeper than these points? And I've got four kind of key headlines that come out of the two texts that we've had today that I want to talk through. Firstly, as we heard uh, from our reading in Genesis, God is a creator. He created the heavens and the earth, and he saw that it was good. And then we go on to hear that we are made in the image of God. Mankind is made in God's image. So one of the drivers that I mentioned for work, this desire to create something, do something of worth, is actually a God-given desire. It's part of our, who our creator is shining through into us. God is the creator and he calls his people to be a creative people who are working to produce something that is good. And God's work is varied. As we see in Genesis, there is a wide variety of creative work that God's doing. It speaks into many professions. We see elements of perhaps architecture, engineering, agriculture, and later in chapter 2, even surgery. There's so many more that could be mentioned. God's work is varied, and likewise, our talents are varied. It might be easier for the craftsman, perhaps, to identify with the creative God. But actually, for all of us, there is elements of God's creativity in our work. Now, we're all called to unique workplaces, unique tasks, using our talents. And this reminded me of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul talks about the body of Christ with many parts. And in that chapter, Paul's urging each of us to accept who we are and to take the abilities that we have and to use them. So whilst it might be easy to resonate with some parts of God's creativity, actually he's calling us to take the skills and abilities that we've been given and use them for his glory. Some of you may be familiar with the film Chariots of Fire, which is about the uh, Olympian Eric Liddell, who was a Scottish uh, Christian who was called to the mission field in China. But before he went to China, he wanted to compete in the 1924 Olympics in uh, the sprinting races, which was one of his talents. And there's this uh, scene in the film where he's talking to his sister. And his sister's very worried that his running could detract from his call to the mission field. And he's trying to explain to her uh, why he wants to compete in the Olympics before he goes to China. And then he gives this speech, and there's two very well-known and uh, interesting phrases that he comes out with. The first one is he says, when I run, I feel his pleasure, meaning I feel God's pleasure. And secondly, he says, to win is to honour him, which is a strange concept 
on the face of it, to think that winning in a running race can be honouring God. But I think this really comes back to the point I was making there, where using our talents in a positive way is honouring to God. And it may not be something that initially seems to link with who God is or what he wants us to do, like running, for example. But God has given us each individual talents, and to use them for his glory is to honour him and makes him glad. But we're not just seeking to copy or emulate God. Actually, we're to partner with him in his work. He calls us to be a partner and a co-laborer. And one verse which really made this stand out to me comes from Psalm 104, verse 14. It says, He makes the grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. It says, God is the one who makes the plants, but we do the cultivating. There's partnership there. And actually our work is a result of God's gracious provision. He gives us the provision that we may work and produce something of benefit. And it's in that element of partnership. But we also then, following our reading in Genesis this morning, if you go on, we have the fall. And after uh, Genesis 1, Adam and Eve eat from the tree that they were commanded not to, and they're cast out of the garden. And the fall has a profound effect on our work. In Genesis 3.17, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. The fall has an effect on our work. It takes it away from God's intended desire for work into something different. And now, in our theology of work, we have to set God's gracious provision of work in the context of a fallen world. And actually, if we think back to uh, the slide I had with some of the downsides of work, actually a number of those we can trace to the sinful nature of human beings. It's how through our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of others, we might make our workplaces a more negative and less satisfying place to be. But having said that, there is redemption. And this is one of the key strands that runs through the whole of the Bible as God works to free mankind from the effects of the fall, which culminates in the life and death of Jesus. Firstly, Jesus' life and death shows us that transformation comes with a cost. And why is that important to our work? Well, God is calling us to partner in his redemptive work. And therefore, if the redemptive work of Jesus was transformation at a cost, then when we partner with him in this work, then it may be transforming, but it may also have a cost. And then that, again, supports our theology of work, of the, the positives and the negatives of work. And how does God partner, uh, call us to partner with him in his redemptive work? The first point I thought of was the Great Commission in Matthew 28. God calls us to make disciples of all nations. I think this isn't just as evangelists or missionaries, but through our witness in our work. Actually, I thought it was fantastic. Anyone who was here before the service started saw the video uh, about the... I can't remember what's it called... <laughs> 
Thy Kingdom Come. That's the one. The video about Thy Kingdom Come. We had Brian talking about his Christian solicitor and his Christian probation worker and these Christians he was surrounded with who were being Christians in their workplace and called him to Christ. And next, in our prayers we say, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And actually through our work we are called to bring God's kingdom to earth. One point that stood out to me here, Ephesians 4, 28. It says, we are to work so that we might have something to give away. Our theology of work is not just for ourselves, but it's working that we might help others in need and in that way bring God's kingdom to earth. And Indeed, it's each of our responsibilities to do this. Sometimes it's tempting to think that others better than ourselves or more well-informed, more inclined to academic and theological thinking should be setting the course that we should follow. But as C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, Mere Christianity, he says the job is really on us, on the laymen. The application of Christian principles, say, to trade unionism or education, must come from Christian trade unionists and Christian schoolmasters. And of course he's speaking into two vocations of his time, but this quite easily follows into any job or workplace you can think of. The onus to work out and understand how to be a Christian, whatever your job title might be, falls on you and your fellow Christian co-workers to take the lead in understanding how this theology of work fits into your workplace. The final point I had is future hope. Because, of course, that is what redemption is leading to, a future hope. Firstly, we work in the hope that we might make a difference in the here and now of our world. That in the not-too-distant future, we might effect a change, glorifying God and bringing his kingdom to earth. Much as in the video earlier, those Christian solicitors and probation officers made a huge change in the life of Brian. But we also work for a God who provides a much bigger future hope, the ultimate future hope that we begin to hear of in the reading from Isaiah 65. The future hope of God restoring work to its original design. And Isaiah 65 speaks of future hope in a number of ways, but there was a couple of verses that really stood out to me in the context of work. The first one was, in verse 21, it says, They will build houses and dwell in them, and they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Think a really common demotivator in the modern workplace sometimes is people feel like they're working to line someone else's pockets or for someone else's benefit and they never see the fruits of their labour. But God promises us that we have the future hope of reaping the benefits of our work. And secondly, in verse 23, it says, Nor will their children be doomed to misfortune. Or well, they will not labour in vain, nor will their children be doomed to misfortune. This reminded me of when I was a child, I had a book called Football Stories That Really Happened. Because I, I loved football as a kid. 
In fact, my parents-in-law will tell you, the first time they came to this church and saw me, I was 12 years old. I was wearing a Chelsea kit, which only ever came off to be washed. And I think my mother had to force it from me or take it off me in my sleep to get it washed. So I used to love this book, Football Stories That Really Happened, and it was about stories, amazing stories from the world of football. And one was the story of Jack and Bobby Charlton, who many of you will know as famous footballers in the 60s and 70s, who then went on to be managers. One of the stories in this book was about how their mother coached them to footballing success. And her motivator for doing that was they were born into a mining community. And she was desperate for them not to have a life working in the mines as their father had done and everyone around them was doing. And she thought the only way that she could see them getting out of this was football and to become professional footballers. So she devoted her life to coaching them to success so that they might not have to go and work down the mines. And that resonated with me of this idea of having children that are doomed to misfortune. She felt like her children were doomed to a terrible career of monotony and eventual health problems that came with it. So she was looking for something different. But part of our future hope is God offers us a freedom from that and a hope that we won't labour in vain any longer or bear children doomed to misfortune. God offers us a hope that our work will be fulfilling and fruitful. So as we look at our theology of work, we look at being creative people, emulating the creative nature of our God. We understand that work is God's gracious provision, but it is set in the context of a fallen world. But we partner with God in his redemptive work and we look forward to the future hope that is to come. So Father God, I pray that as we go from this place, you would help us all to reflect on and understand in more detail our theology of work. Lord, as we step into our workplace tomorrow, wherever or whatever that may be, May you help us understand how best to apply our Christian principles to our workplace. Lord, that we might take the lead in defining what it is to be Christian workers. Amen.